Welcome to another installment of Masters of Craft. The name of the game is if you play, you pay for it, you own it, right? And I'm sure you hear, heard that before. That is almost implying that your creative contribution does not have the same value as the money that's being put up to produce it, which I totally disagree with. Yes, the money's necessary, but the money can't create this without that element. But you can create that without the money element. It just would take longer and it would be a lot harder. But the idea or the vision of it is just as significant. And, and I think right now, I think there's a need for artists and creatives to, to have a more equitable situation with the studios because what we bring into the table is just as valuable, if not more valuable than the money that's being put up to make it. I, I had this picture in my mind like of this dystopian future where like AI and NFTs and digital, like all of these things would basically destroy humanity. And I've been following AI for a long time and I've been studying transhumanism and I just had a very grim picture of what the future is gonna look like. And then, you know, Love, she was like, okay, so yeah, maybe AI will get to a place where it is doing everybody's jobs. But then wouldn't that create an opportunity for people to start to think on another level? Hey Carl. Hey. How you doing? I'm good, I'm good, how are you? I'm good. I'm sitting like this. Yeah, I, I, I admire that. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's the, your flexibility game is on point. Right, well, wait till the end of the interview. <laughs> um, welcome to another installment of Masters of Craft. I'm your host, Chris Denson. In case you guys are tuning in for the first time, the show covers all things ingenuity, really. The people who are um, charging paths forward that are uncommon. So I applaud you for charging paths that are uncommon. Oh, thank you. Also, thank you to the FYI team, Focus Your Ideas, Will I Am, for allowing us to use this lovely space. And, um, and thank you for being here. Um, why were you born in Germany? <laughs> that's a good question. Why was I born in Germany? Well, um, I had a parent that was in the military, so that's really the reason why. Um, but I wasn't in Germany for that long. You know, um, I think I moved back to the States when I was maybe one, a little younger, yeah. So you, yeah. know, you don't go back for like family reunions in <laughs> Nuremberg. <laughs> go back to see all the babies I met in the nursery. Right, exactly. Nah, <laughs> It'd be a weird reunion. It'd be like the, all the babies that were born in a certain hospital, they should have uh, hospital reunions. Yeah, yeah. I wouldn't know what they're talking about because they're all German, yeah, I'm sure. But You know, sauerkraut. Yeah. The, um, <laughs> you, your company, Martian Blueberry, is like honestly one of my favorite company names, period. Oh, wow. Like I was just like, you. I was just, and it just spoke to you and the brand and the team and the things you've created. And um, I would love to hear your interpretation of what that name means to you. So the name is another way of saying strange fruit, right? It's kind of a, you know, a, I guess more, a more lighthearted, fun way of saying strange fruit. And strange fruit, I'm sure most people are familiar, but um, Billy Holiday, Billy Holiday had a really popular song called Strange Fruit. And, um, and it also is, they're actually like these marble-sized stones that are extraterrestrial in origin. So they've been found on Mars by the Mars rover, but there have, there have been some that have been located on Earth as well. And so um, some Native American shaman used the Martian blueberries as like a, a conduit you know, to the spiritual world, but they also use it to heal, and it is, just a big part of like, I guess like the, in certain Native American cultures, the, the, you know, bringing the spiritual world and the physical world together, you know. Did you know all that before you came up with the name or did I, you learn it after the fact? I did, I did. Um, Cause I had a friend of mine who actually brought back some from a Native American um, 
uh, a Native American tribe. I can't remember which tribe, but he brought like a handful of them back to me as a gift. And I was like, I didn't, at that time I hadn't heard of him. So he's like, yo, they're Martian blueberries. And I'm like, that's a really dope name. <laughs> you know, and so he just started telling me about it and I just went down a rabbit hole and started researching and I, and I was just like, that's amazing. And then, you know, so when I was thinking of a name for a company, um, I, I wanted to go with Strange Fruit at one time. And I thought, you know what? This is actually a more creative way of saying that. Mm -hmm. you know? That's so, great. Uh, did you t how did the blueberries taste? You know, you know. You no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I say you definitely want to eat these. Um, I had a feeling you were a nerd because um, I love like yes, you, a piece of information comes your way that's intriguing, and then you go down the rabbit hole. You just regurgitated a bunch of stuff I've never heard of. I even I tried to look up what blue you know uh, Martian blueberries were. Yeah. Um, and I feel like the intersection of you growing up in North Carolina and for 12 months in Germany um, and entering animation at a time that you did, it was probably not as cool as it is now. Is that, that true? Or like, and, and tell me like what that, you know, your early entrance into the animation world. Yeah, um, well, well, yeah, I grew, so I grew up in Fayetteville, North Carolina and um, there was nobody doing anything remotely close to what I wanted to do with my life and what I ended up doing. Um, but I did grow up on a street called Bedrock, which I thought that could be poss possible omen. You know, I was a big fan of Flintstones. Um, but when I was growing or up- Trey Songs. Trey Songs. I can make you a bedrock. Is that, That's is, hilarious. Is that, I didn't know that song, but- mm. Oh, okay. well, I'll send it to you. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, so I, I always had this passion for, you know, drawing and cartooning and, um, and comedy and writing, but I didn't really discover that until later. Um, but long story short, uh, I got my first opportunity to work in animation doing a project for Rockefeller Films. Um, it was called The Playpen, right? And this was at the time when Jay-Z and Dame Dash were still talking, they were still together. Still right? This was at the height, right? This was at the height of Rockefeller. So, um, so I got brought onto this project called The Playpen, right? And The Playpen was basically a story, it was basically a show about the Rockefeller rappers, you know what I'm saying, as babies in this daycare center that's like a correctional facility. <laughs> so instead of nap time, they had lights out, and you know what I mean, that kind of thing. So, um, so I came out to New York and I started developing the show and Beanie Siegel got arrested for attempted murder. So that kind of killed the cartoon, all, all puns intended. <laughs> um, <laughs> so after that, um, I, I, I basically decided to pack up everything and move out to LA. Um, it's a more interesting thing that happened right before I did that. I think you might, it's kind of funny and, and dangerous at the same time. Cause I was like a, I used to sell a lot of bootleg movies. That was my career for a long time. I was like, I was like the Tony Montana of bootleg <laughs> movies and mixtapes. And as, you know, I was selling bootleg watches and clothes and all that stuff, you know, hitting the barbershops and, you know, and, and so Roscoe's. Did I ever see you? At, did I see you at, outside of Roscoe's? No, no, no. This is, nah, this okay, is this right, is in North Carolina. Sure. Uh oh, <laughs> this, is, this is North Carolina. <laughs> like I knew I knew you. This is, yeah, <laughs> I didn't sell you that bad movie, but but I almost I actually it's funny because I almost like lost my life over a Flubber movie, you know, because I used to set up I used to set up like right behind the projects at this convenience store. So one day this guy brings a movie back and he's like, "Yo, I'm watching this movie with my daughter," and all of a sudden there's a man that just walks up, gets him gets up and walks in front of the screen. And I'm like, and he's like, I want my money back. And I'm like, well, when you go to see a real movie and someone gets up and they walk in front of your view, you can't go get your money back, and I, which I thought was really clever, but he didn't. <laughs> so 
he left out. I say about 20, 30 minutes later, I see this car roll up into the gas station and I was set up in front of my van. I had like a table, a big spread of movies and stuff. And I see this car rolling up and the guy is in the passenger seat, but he's got like this arm down and this arm on the window, which is not a good sign. And then I just, my spidey senses kicked in and I grabbed my boy and like, I was like, yo, get down. And as soon as I said that, he pulls out a gun and just like starts spraying up. He shot up, shot the glass out of my van. And, um, and then he just like, you know, he peels off and my boy was like, yo, let's go get him. I'm like, yo, you can go get him. <laughs> I'm going home. And I remember I went home and I sat on the edge of my bed. And that was a moment for me. I was like, yo, what am I doing with my life? <laughs> you know, I'm like, I, you know, and, and, and mind you, at this time, I, you know, I had like a drawing table, you know, crammed in my kitchen with like boxes of sketches and ideas and stuff that I've, just all my dreams and things I wanted to do. And eventually I've just built up the courage to just pack up and take that hike. Yeah. You know, that's like, what do you do with the box of dreams? Like, it just, I feel that poetry. Yeah. In in terms of, you know, life decisions, Um, you know, and what was it like to leave? I feel like there's multiple points in life where you leave something familiar behind and enter into a new space. And you also like bring with you skills and you also do away with some, you know, some behaviors or things that you experienced. Tell me about like the evolution of Carl Jones and like how you know you revisited certain cycles and evolved and changed changed who you were. Hmm, it's a good question. Um, I don't know. I think uh, I mean I you know I'm always learning something. You know I'm always you know I, I never I, one thing I I think that I've learned over the years I think is is really how to pace myself because when I first got into the industry. You know, I was always someone that, you know, I was really passionate and I was really eager to like, you know, to try to translate whatever I have in my imagination on the screen and and making sure that it is exactly the way I had it envisioned. But you're working with a lot of moving pieces and a lot of other people with different opinions and thoughts. And some of them are actually paying for your project. So being able to adapt to this world where like everyone is having input on your art in the direction it should go and how it should be perceived by the world is something I had to, I struggled with a little bit. You know, I still struggle with it, but I've gotten better because I realized that like, this is a marathon you're running, right? So mm-hmm. like, you know, you could, so you can make the, you can, you might be able to, you might throw a, a fight in this, in this first part of the war, but then you could remove yourself from opportunities that could exist if you just played, you know what I mean? Played along with the game and maybe got a couple of the things that you want to see and then you you know you just it's a give and take type of thing and eventually you get to a place where you're standing high enough where you can call more shots and actually make more decisions without having so many other people's outside opinions but <clears throat> i didn't know that in the beginning so i was fighting everything and after you know falling down a few times and you know bruising up <laughs> you know get, getting bruised and banged up a few times you realize like okay I gotta, I gotta focus on the much bigger goal here and figure out a way to maneuver through this maze and, and make certain compromises when necessary in order to get to a place where I'll be able to help other people not have to make those compromises mm. at all, you know? Yeah. Um, what was, I don't know, like I, would, I mean, I, I love that story and I think about how there might be a moment where, the, you know, a rock bottom. 
right? Was there a rock bottom along that way where you're like, okay, this is, this has to change? And or was there like a mentor or person for you to kind of tap into to give you some advice and some direction? Yeah. Um, well, I wouldn't say I wouldn't say rock bottom, but there was a moment on the Boondocks, which was like my first real show that I actually produced. The Boondocks, we the first season out the gate, we were having some monstrous problems. It was like, it was hard finding artists that understood anime, because most of the artists that are here domestically, they come from Cal Arts and they do a lot more traditional, you know, Cartoon Network, Saturday morning type of cartoons. So we were looking for artists and then we, you know, Sony at that time, you know, none of us really had much TV experience. So Sony was making a lot of decisions for us and putting people in place and they were the wrong people, but they didn't understand the vision you know, and so we ended up like revising whole episodes over and over and over again because they the mm. storyboards would be wrong, the designs would be wrong. They didn't quite understand the culture. So um, it got to a point where we ran the risk of the show not even being producible, you know. So that's when you got to start really making some compromises. And there was a guy um, that, well, he was a, he was a um, supervising director on the show at the time, Bob Hathcock who was like, he'd been in the game for a long time. Like he, like he, I think he like worked on the Smurfs. Like, you know wow. what I'm saying? Like he, and an unfortunate he, last name. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but Bob, he, he, but he sat me down and he was like, look, he said, if you get 70% of your vision on the screen, it's a success. He said, you gotta think about it that way. He said, you'll never get uh, more than 90. <laughs> he was like, he said, so don't even set yourself up for that failure, you know? And and that stayed with me to this day. That's great. You know. Yeah. Look, I mean, it, I, we talk a lot about innovation on this show, and especially like this, the ecosystem and the operating systems of how innovation happens. Mm -hmm. And one of the big things I like to focus on is consensus, right? Because it's there's a philosophy I, I told my son recently. It was like there's a different version of you that lives inside the head of everyone you've ever met. Wow. Right, which is kind of trippy, right? So I think the same thing happens it's with an idea. Profound. Like when you hear an idea and when somebody else hears an idea and then especially in animation because you have to make it from scratch. It's not like, oh, we have this actor and we know his stature and what he looks, you know, there's a different kind of vision you need to bring forth and you have to communicate it kind of ethereally, maybe with some some sketches. But, you know, what have you learned about getting consensus and getting everybody rallied around the vision and the mission versus, you know, the nuance of, and the minutia of how it is gonna look as a finished product. Yeah, I think, I think the most important thing that I've, I've learned over the years is not to be such a dictator and be more of an inspirer, you know what I mean? Like, you know, especially when you're dealing with artists, you know, artists don't really wanna be told what to do, really. You know, and if they're working on your vision, there's not a lot of room for them to express their own personal creativity. So what I've learned is give them a little bit more room to explore, right, the things that they actually, that they actually are passionate about and that they bring to the table themselves. And it's not an easy thing to do, you know, but I found that giving them room to do what they do best and bringing that to your, your vision, you end up finding new paths that you never would have discovered it had you not opened up those doors. So um, so there's a lot of things that I see on shows that I made to this day where I look back and I go, wow, I would have never thought of that, you know? It's also weird because I think like sometimes as a creative, your gut will tell you one thing and then you're getting feedback and you're like, ah. 
And sometimes yeah. your gut works and it's like, see, I told you. And then other times you're like, I'm glad you told me that idea that I resisted. Yeah. And, you know, instinct and those sorts of things when they play into the creative process can kind of be challenging. Yeah. Uh, I mean, can you speak to that in, in some way? Yeah, I think, well, I think it starts with working with people that you have a certain amount of trust. You, you got There's got to be a certain amount of trust there already. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't trust everyone's taste. So when they're pitching something, it may not resonate with me sometimes just because I don't trust your taste. I don't know, it could actually be a good idea, but I, if your taste is questionable, then your, your ideas probably will be too, <laughs> you know? But what I like to do, especially in, in, you know, in, a, in a writer writer's room environment, is I, I don't like to have any kind of hierarchy in the room, right? Like everyone is basically on the same level, you know? Um, that way, regardless of what your titles are, like you put them, you, you leave them at the door because I think it's such a sacred place for ideas and you want people to feel valued and you want people's ideas to be received well. So I always tell everybody, if you're a PA writer's assistant, if you're a janitor that's coming through the room, if you got an idea, you overhear something like pitch it, you know, and, and but you got to create that kind of energy in that kind of environment where people feel okay to do that because it's a very, you're being really vulnerable when you, when you pitch anything, you know, to this day, I'm even nervous when I pitch stuff, you know, but I think when you have that kind of atmosphere and you have people that you develop a, a somewhat of a trust with, you become like a family and, 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 you know, it's a little easier to like, to make those kind of decisions on whether or not to go with your own instinct or go with someone else's because you know, it's a, a think tank that you can mm -hmm. trust at least. You know, uh, what makes you nervous about pitching? Everything, <laughs> every everything. I hate pitching so much, <laughs> and and it's funny because everybody's like, "But you do so well, like you sold shows and stuff." And it, I don't know how, because so in my mind, this is going horribly. You know, you know. I think the main, especially during this, like right now, because we're, everybody's on Zoom, pitching on Zoom is the worst. Right. You know, when you're pitching in the, room, at least in a real room with real people, you know, you can feel the energy and the feedback. And on Zoom, everyone's got their mics off. You know, some people got their cameras off. You don't know what they're really thinking. You don't know if they're laughing. You don't hear anything. It's like doing stand up to just a wall, <laughs> like, you know. And and, and you don't want to really focus on too many people's expressions because that can sometimes. So, yo, so it's a, a whole thing, but just the fact that like you're putting an idea out there and allowing people to look for reasons to say no and to tear it apart and to pick it apart. Now that's not the only thing they can do. They can also say this is really, this is amazing and we love it. But when you put it in context and you know that they're hearing maybe 20 or 30 of these a day, it's kind of, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It's, it's a little, it's a little um, overwhelming and intimidating. So. I don't know, um, and I'm a little bit of an introvert myself. I'm not naturally just a person that just talks a lot, thus I have this hoodie on, <laughs> you know, because it's, it, it's kind of like my line is blanket. It makes me feel, <laughs> you know, it's like a, like a turtle shell or something. I feel a little bit more protected, but um, yeah, I just, I don't know. It's very nervous. I get nervous. Yeah, no, it's I trippy, I mean, because it, it's, um, I mean, I, I knew, I interviewed a guy once who uh, was a cannabis pioneer, and he said he pitched his business 198 times before they saw a dollar, right? Before anybody mm -hmm. said yes. So that same, and I was like, you know, if you're pitching a concept for the 20th time, like how are you hitting the refresh button to go in and like, all right, we're yeah. gonna try again. Or this the third meeting with the same company and you're like, I guess, don't you get the concept but, already? But you know what I do? I, I usually have to become another character, like a, a kind of an alter ego. Thugnificent. Not quite Thugnificent. <laughs> you wouldn't sell shit if I was being Thugnificent. 
but but it is like a slightly alternate alternative version of myself you know it, and it's funny you said that because um i know um 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 the guy that that founded amazon why jeff bezos yes. He he was talking about how it took him sixty meetings to raise one million dollars for Amazon, right. and I was just like that. And and this is Jeff Bezos, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, it's just, I mean, it's just hard pitching anything is hard because part of it is also the art of selling yourself, you know. And if you and, and unless you're extremely narcissistic and felt very self-absorbed, it's not an easy thing for most people to do to sell yourself, you know. I mean, you can do it naturally, I guess, without focusing on selling yourself, but you know. It takes some thought, and it takes a lot of, um, I don't know, it takes a very special thing that I had to develop over years, because in the beginning, I, don't, I think I was horrible at it, you know? Um, I think one of the things that's grossly under, underestimated in animation is cost and expertise and, you know, the assumptions that people make when they want to say yes. You know, years ago, I almost sold the show, and then they told me what the budget was going to be, and I was like, I can, I can only make a couple, like, don't you, un, like, you don't. <laughs> understand like what it actually takes, let alone your expertise and your value that you bring into the table. Um, yeah. I don't know if that's your experience or like, you know, or if you've had in inklings or implement uh, elements. That's what it is. Yeah, that works, that works. Inklements is not a thing. No, it's role elements. <laughs> <laughs> like elements of that show up in your world like and, and how you navigate that sort of perception of value and, you know, worth. That's a, that's a great point to bring up. Um, this is one of the things that I, I, I kind of, I guess preach about all the time because, you know, Hollywood has this, this notion that you know, well, the, the name of the game is if you play, you pay for it, you own it, right? And I'm sure you hear, heard that before, but that is almost implying that your creative contribution does not have the same value as the money that's being put up to produce it, which I totally disagree with. You know, um, the money can fund multiple projects, right? Like, I mean, the money. I'm saying like. Yes, the money's necessary, but the money the money can't create this without that element, right? But you can create that without the money element. It just would take longer and it would be a lot harder. But at least but the idea or the vision of it is just as significant and and I think there's right now I think there's a need for artists and creatives to to have a more equitable situation with the studios because what we bring into the table is just as valuable, if not more valuable, than the money that's being put up to make it, you know? And I think um, being able to understand our value gives us a lot more legs to stand on, but when we don't, for me, like just being in Hollywood at all and having a TV show in the air was just everything. That was all <laughs> I cared about, you know what I'm saying? Even if I was still broke, <laughs> you know, I just loved the fact that I had something that was on TV or something that was in the trades, mm -hmm. you know, to see my name in the Hollywood Reporter. And that's a lot of us because most of us come, we don't come from wealth and, you know, we, most of us, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, I, but I think now we, we have to look at things a little differently in order for us to not have to strike for three or four months to show or prove to someone that we have value and that we should be compensated for our work. Like we shouldn't even have to do that. But I think if there's opportunities to establish that mentally, you know, first, it would change the way we do our contracts. How has the AI conversation changed both your craft and your business? That's a great question too. So in the beginning, I was completely against AI. I was like, it's like I saw AI as the Terminator. I just wanted to destroy the idea of AI, <laughs> right? Um, 
But as I began to really, really think about it, you know, one, it's not going anywhere, right? Two, I was really fighting this from the wrong angle, you know, because what we should be more concerned about is how our data is being mined for free <laughs> versus the actual threat of AI as a whole. Like, I think AI is a very powerful tool that can be used to, you know, for many, it can be used for many different things that I think help to liberate people and free creatives to also focus more on the conceptual side of creation and actually than, than the logistical stuff, right? So that's, that's one thing. But if we, start, if we start to truly understand that there is no chat GPT without our data, there is no autonomous cars without our data, there's no AI without our data, we should be monetizing our data. We should not be giving away our data for free <laughs> so that that data can be used to replace the job that you have. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Wow. You should be monetizing yeah. the data so that you are, Either, so either you have equity in the platform that's monetizing the data or you actually have some type of residual that you receive off of e each usage of that data, you know? So, so to answer your question, how, how it's affecting what we're building, with Martian Blueberry, although it's a creative agency, there's also a tech side to it that has to, I mean, it, I, I, mean I think for any thriving business today, you gotta have a tech side to it in order for it to, Absolutely. You got because you're gonna have to integrate it in some kind of way. So we are working to develop a platform that is integrated into Web3 and blockchain technology that gives, you know, it basically allows people, anyone that brings value, whether it's creatives or people that are fans of the work that we create, you know, if they're bringing any type of value to the table, we're offering them an opportunity to have a, a digital asset or property rights as well, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> um, the resistance part of that uh, dialogue kind of stuck with me because at, resistance sometimes is what makes us fall behind and like we don't get the opportunity to use that tool, that technology that, you know, and be a part of the future. It's like Blockbuster was very resistant to Netflix and right. we, we see what happens. Um, but then also like everything you just said is kind of ahead of the curve. So what was the learning curve for you to go like, oh, okay, I see the potential of all these technologies. Like what, how do you nerd out and kind of get informed and then make the decision to apply it to your business or your craft or not? Well, the learning curve actually happened. And, this, and I actually, I, I got a little sidetracked because the, the learning curve actually happened when we took a deep dive into Web3 and NFTs. And the reason why we did that is because, I can't say the name of the show, but I was working on a show that, that I was- What was it called? I can't say the name of the show, oh, okay. I was working on the show. Because <laughs> I want to say it, and if you ask me again, I probably will. Which, <laughs> which, which, show, which show was it? <laughs> um, but, but we had a situation where I didn't quite agree with the direction it was going in, and I was removed from that show, right? Along, so I, I whatever ideas I had and whatever creative I brought to the table was no longer mine. And that at that moment, I began to like really, really focus on a way to get around this from happening ever again, right? So I took a deep dive into Web3 and NFTs and started learning about decentralized financing and, and DAOs and all this stuff, right? And so we launched an NFT project um, called Bubble Goose Ballers, right? And we launched it right at the beginning of the bear market. So it was like the, the market was, was doing, at the time it was, 
it was doing pretty bad, so everybody kind of advised us not to do it, but we, we launched it anyway, and we sold out <clears throat> 10,000 NFTs in less than an hour on the Solana blockchain, and um, we built a really strong community around this project, and since then, we've been on, a, we've, we've been on this like really beautiful path of building a brand around this, um, but when we, but when we, when we did that, it, it, it really taught us a lot, and just not only about Web3 and NFTs, but how AI, if the future, if the future of the world is going to be, you know, in some way rooted in AI, then it only makes sense that the transactions, the financial transactions that would be taking place would need some type of ledger, right, in order to create any kind of, you know, fingerprint, yeah. you know what I'm saying, for, for the moves that are being made with AI, but also any financial transactions that are taking place would have to be done with some type of cryptocurrency, right? So, so at that point, we realized that AI and Web3 basically work hand in hand, as, as well as with gaming, right? Mm. So, so, we, so we, we, just, we just begin to form this whole picture very quickly on how content creation, AI, and Web3 are all basically moving in towards the same intersection, right. you know? Uh, you sound like an ecosystem thinker. Uh, especially <laughs> yeah. as an executive producer and all the things you've done, but then there's like, I'm mean just I'll reference Thugnificent again, only because mm -hmm. I think there's honing in on just the, you know, the entertainment moment that you want to create, and not having to think about is it going to work here, is it going to, you know, all the other bells and how do you turn off the macro and get into the micro and go back and forth between those two states? I mean, it's all one thing to me. You know, you know what I mean. It's kind of like. Um, the idea of like a like a like a fractal universe, right? That we live in, where like you know everything within the micro is also contained within the macro. Like I, I and, and what I mean by that is is just that like I I don't know how to I don't know how to make a a decision that in some way does not affect our entire organization or the future of the company, right? So like. You know, it's just, and I think, I, I, and I don't know where that way of thinking has come from. I probably, a lot of it came from my anxiety because, you know, having like high anxiety, <laughs> you have a tendency to like go way past what most people might think would, could play out, like the, poss the worst case possible scenario. So like I go to a party, if I'm, if I'm planning to go to a party, I start already thinking about where this could potentially go. And it's because you mix the anxiety with, the mo with, uh, with, with imagination and, and sometimes it's a, it's, a, it's a really bad thing to, to mm. deal with, right? But I think, I think having that kind of thinking keeps me up at night, constantly thinking of, okay, so if we, if we launch this today, what is that gonna look like a year from now? And then a year from now, how can we p position ourselves so that 10 years from now we'll be, I, I just, I, I'm just, I, I think because I'm afraid that it will all collapse <laughs> at any moment, right. I'm constantly thinking of ways to keep it, to stay ahead of ourselves so that that doesn't happen, you know? It's interesting when, you know, uh, weakness is a strong word, but when something like that becomes a superpower, right? And I think almost like every superhero origin story comes from some place of loneliness or death, you know, oh, wow. loss or yeah. you know something like that um even myself like imposter syndrome has been such a big part of why i do excellent things right because i'm like ooh, everybody's gonna think i'm fake if i don't right. do all the things which you know um can feel anxious at times but also other times it's like i can recognize it as a superpower um was there a point where you saw a shift in your relationship with anxiety and how you learned to harness it rather than succumb to it yeah i i have to say um my wife has helped me a lot with that 
you know, because she is that why she's here today? She's, she, oh, <laughs> she's everywhere with me because of that, <laughs> probably. But um, no, because you know, for example, right? Like even with with AI and NFTs, for because I was even I, my son was telling me about NFTs for a long time too, and I was just kind of like, I, I had this picture in my mind like of this dystopian future where like AI and NFTs and digital, like all of these things would basically destroy humanity. And this was kind of my mind. This is, and I've been following AI for a long time and I've been studying transhumanism and, you know, like Ray Kurzweil and these guys and discover, and thinking about like, you know, I, I just had a very grim picture of what the future is gonna look like. And then, you know, love, like one day she, you know, she'll just bring up like, these like ideas that are, that go against everything that I believe in, but it but it would make sense, right? Yeah. She was like, "Well, you know, okay, yeah." So like, she was like, "Okay, so yeah, maybe AI will get to a place where it is doing everybody's jobs." She said, "But then wouldn't that create an opportunity for people to start to think on another level and actually develop new ways to to do things mm-hmm. and reinvent?" You know, and I was just like, "Damn, okay, I could see that." You know, and, and she would do this. She would poke holes in a lot of my theories every now and then in, in, a, in a good way, you know, because it kind of like deflates this this giant, yeah. you know what I'm saying, massive like fear that I might have and, and, and I can actually see things for what they really are, you know. I, I haven't, I don't share this theory often and I definitely haven't done it in a recorded environment, but um, I have this, theory, you know, we talk about the fourth industrial revolution and mm-hmm. the previous industrial revolutions that have just changed and like, you know, when people had that fear mongering around AIs, like the same thing with the steam engine, the same thing with the phonograph. It's like musicians thought their jobs were going to be taken away because they were going venue to venue. That's true. And then they're like, please don't make this records, right? <laughs> don't. Yeah. And then next thing you know, this, it birthed the, the record industry. And I think part of me feels like we don't have anything left to make. You know, like we when we can invent things or whatever, but um, I feel like with this sort of AI kind of doing a lot of things that are going to, like you said, just like take away jobs, it is this time to revisit who we are as humanity, right? Yes. And and it's like we're searching inward. I was on a, uh, I'll let you talk in a minute, but I was I was on a uh, a boat in Can Lions, and there was a bunch of black executives talking about AI and how they were like. You know, that job that I had, you know, that got me to where I am, the entry-level job is now going to be gone. And my mindset was like, well, we should be teaching people how to think because this happens every so often, these cycles of change and shift. And That's like, right. Jobs are lost, what we used to do no longer exists and so on and so forth. But if we can teach people adaptability, especially like younger generations and like the emotional intelligence of what it means to like about, yep. think differently. Go ahead. No, 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 no. That's I was thinking. I was th- I, bro. I, we think the same because, I mean, that's the thing, right? Like AI, it is mental intelligence, right? So anything that requires memory, essentially, AI can can do. But emotional intelligence is something that yes, humans possess this very unique and special that we we a lot of times just we don't we don't give it the kind of attention that it deserves, right? So this will kind of force us to do that in a lot of ways because you won't have to use your, your your mind as much and you can actually tap into these other ways to experience the world and experience different realities even outside of your own. You know, because we don't even know the, I mean, I mean, we don't, we, we're, we're just basically scratching the surface of what our emotional intelligence even is and what it's capable of. So I, I would imagine that in a future where anything that essentially requires you know, our mental capacity is pretty much covered for us. We would have nothing else left to do but to explore the emotional intelligence that we, and and our interconnectedness, 
you know, because that is something else that I think when we get so caught up in our minds and our thoughts and our opinions, it also creates division between people because those ideas and those beliefs and all of those different things, they just, they, they become barriers. A lot of times we, we have them, we think to protect ourselves, but then they also become kind of walls that can imprison you into your own ideas. But when you start removing those thoughts, then you allow people to just connect on a heart level, right? Mm-hmm. Without any kind of mm-hmm. beliefs or whatever. And, and, and so I do, and like I said, like, you know, love helped me to start moving down that road and start to see the, see it through a different lens. And now I'm understanding how these things can be used as just tools. Because at the end of the day, and I'll just sum it up with this, is with AI, especially in the creative industry, you still have human beings at the end of both spectrums of that equation, right? So you're creating content for humans, and it, and it initially is going to start with the concept that is created by a human in order for it to actually reach another human, right? Because right? it has to be meaningful. It has to, in order for it to be meaningful, it has to in some way tap into some type of emotional intelligence, right? Like, I don't think AI could have created Star Wars from scratch, you know? You know what I mean? So I, I think it's good at executing another Star Wars if you needed to, you know. Mm-hmm. But the initial vision for it came from a passion, came from a creative, passionate place. And people connected with it because it meant something to them because it came from a passionate, creative place. So I, so I still think at the end of the day, people are in the equation. No, I feel like it comes like somebody goes, how can I? And then that's when you start exploring what the tool might allow you to do. Um, a lot, lot of thoughts. This is what introverts think about all day. <laughs> that's definitely what I think about all day. Like, I feel like you probably could have gone for like another 20 minutes on, on the whole, whole topic. Um, uh, so as an introvert, though, you know, you Google the name Carl Jones and there's like a ton of articles, you know, you're basically saving black culture. Um, there's a, <laughs> There's a lot, like, I feel like there's a pressure that comes from that, or maybe, you know, like where do you find your role in sort of the visibility of the things you've been able to accomplish and your voice as a, you know, as a champion of, um, of, of culture and creativity, but also like I, I need to be in my shell sometimes. Yeah, well, I, really the goal for me is to, is to leverage all that visibility and whatever success I've had into building a brand that actually becomes more of like a, an incubator or, or it's more it's more of a where we're more like a, a you know a curating force in the industry and 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 it does more aggregating you know what i'm saying and creates opportunities for other you know not just black creatives but anyone that that comes from a more untraditional place like like i have meaning meaning like not everyone has the opportunity to go to film school and art school and you know most of my dms are flooded with people that have really great ideas and have a lot of talent, but they have no idea on, about how to get their foot in the door. And I feel obligated to take the success that I've had and create opportunities for other people or else what am I doing it for? You mm-hmm. know, like I'm not in this just for me, you know? And I've been trying to work with other, other peers of mine to see that we stand to gain so much more together, but it's a little hard, you know, because a lot of people, like I said, they want to see their name in the trades and they want to, you know, and, and or they want to be the guy in Hollywood, the black mm-hmm. this and the, you know. But if we were to actually, like, come together, we can actually create more of a legacy and, you know, something equivalent to a black Disney or Pixar, you know, with, with even more verticals, you know, yeah. is what I have envisioned. So 
that's what that's what we've been doing with Martian Blueberry. You know, we've been working really, really hard to create that foundation. So you know, so it's kind of like it's kind of like uh, I like to look at it as like the like the underground railroad. You know what I'm saying? It's like like I got. TV shows and films that are out there that where I go the, the more traditional route in, mm -hmm. in doing it. But with Martian Blueberry, we're exploring all these other verticals even before going to Hollywood. So we're, so we're establishing publishing rights for creatives and putting out, you know, graphic novels and comics and also collectible toys, apparel, you know, um, and, and, and really establishing your IP and creating a, a, a pre-existing you know, property before you even go to Hollywood and start selling your soul, <laughs> you know. <laughs> it went dark quick. Yeah. Um, remember the song Beach Chair by Jay-Z? It's fine if you don't. He, I'm probably, if you It's very like ominous and melodic and almost yeah. like trip hoppy. But um, he talked about this song one day and he's like, this is, this is the kind of music I've been wanting to make. Uh, right, but he's like the industry and the audience response and the money has informed you know the other songs and the music that he's made, um, and I feel like most creatives have that thing. Like I really envision myself this way, yeah. but I kind of have to exist this way. Um, what's what's your beach chair? What's your relationship with the, the concept? Oh man, well, <laughs> it's funny because uh, my. Really, the thing that I want to do, I guess the mag my magnum opus would be to do the equivalent of something like a Star Wars, but very black. And and you know, because I'm 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 heavy into like African cosmology and and Egyptian studies, Sumerian teachings, and I'm a big space cadet. So like I'm into like extraterrestrials, quantum physics, and all of that stuff. But you don't see a lot of that those worlds existing, you know, within our, our stories, mm -hmm. you know what I'm saying? Um, cause I don't, I don't understand like how come we can't have a Harry Potter in Harlem or like why, why can't we, why can't E.T. E come to Crenshaw? <laughs> you, you know what I'm saying? Like that's I a, wrote a sketch called B.E.T. and it was black extraterrestrial. That's hilarious. Like, yeah. That's funny. That's funny. Thank you. Um, Thank you but much. no, but, but that's, that's really the thing. That's, those are the kind of things that get me excited when we can like you know, I don't know, tap more into like magic and, and, and more like black surrealism, you know what I'm saying? And not just do a lot of either trauma porn, <laughs> you know, or- Oh my gosh, I, I, every time, every time I'm like, I can't watch that. Yeah, like, it's I, rough. I, yeah, I can't. We watched a movie, I can't remember, it was a series, I can't remember, but they had like, like, like black babies in the burlap sack and they were like banging them against the wall. I was just like, what? How do I don't even like who's this for? Like I mean, it, yeah, like it, yeah, and I'm like, okay, I get it. It was hard, but do we have to see this? Like, right. I mean, you know, over and over again, mm -hmm. you know, like to the point where slavery has almost become a genre, you know, in Hollywood. It's like, but anyways, I'm just saying it's oversaturated and like it's like they made money off slavery and now they're still making money off slavery. <laughs> <You> <laughs> wow, know? wow. But I, but I, but I, but I do, I do think like, like. For example, right, I, I, was, um, I was talking with some friends of mine in Ghana and they actually connected me with the folklore board in Ghana. Like there's a whole, there's a, there's a, there's a whole like sector of, of, of I, I, wonder, I guess it's not the government, but, there's, a, but there's, a, there's people that come together just to preserve the stories in Ghana and they have tons of them, hundreds of them, if not thousands that no one has ever seen or heard before, but they're there to preserve the integrity of those stories. So like a Marvel doesn't just come through and just snatch stuff out and then do something that's way beyond like the principles that they were trying to instill right. with the stories. So those are the things that get me excited, like going to some of these places like Brazil and, and you know, Nigeria and, and actually like 
tapping into the stories from all over the, the diaspora and actually even bringing, you know, black directors from from the U.S. and partnering them with producers in Ghana or or Sudan or, you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Like, that's just, that stuff gets me excited, you know? And telling unconventional stories that star black characters is also. Um, good luck. No, I'm <laughs> <laughs> no, um, I think, I was gonna say, uh, I'm gonna do this anyway. So just a little comparative analysis. Seis Manos or uh, Parasite? Parasite. Mm, okay. Yeah, I fuck with Parasite. Scissor Seven or Tekken Bloodline? Pass. <laughs> Ooh. Uh, one Punch Man or One Piece? One Piece. <laughs> God, those are good questions, bro. Those are good. Go ahead, go ahead. Uh, Why am I sweating? <laughs> it's the hoodie. Um, just, I've never seen a turtle sweat. The turtle sweat, that's my new cologne. Uh, <laughs> Richard Pryor or Dick Gregory? Richard Pryor. All day. Red Hot or Louisiana? Neither. Oh, you don't, you're not a hot sauce? No. I'm a, I'm a vegan. I'm a Dr. Savy baby. Oh, yeah, you did post something from Dr. Savy. Yeah, yeah. Um, what, what about his teaching speak to you? Uh, I mean, you know, just the plant-based diet and overall just like his, his, his approach to nutrition and, and natural healing. You know, he was a friend of mine, so like he taught me everything about herbs and mm. actually like, I, I, you know, I corrected a lot of issues that I was dealing with at the time. Nothing really serious, but stuff that could have eventually become a problem yeah. if I didn't, you know, give some attention to him. So yeah, he's, uh, he's, he's the truth, bro. You have a, a new relationship with yoga. Um, what's your intentionality and experience with it so, so far? Well, you know, it, it's interesting because when I first started doing it, it was more like, kind of like more like an exercise, right? But I started getting more into what yoga actually means and coming from the root word yogi, which means union. And I started getting more into the meditative side of it also and like using it as an opportunity to, to just create more of a connection with all, you know? And like that is, so there's a kind of like a more of a, I think a more spiritual path is started starting to take. You know? Absolutely, I, like, I've been like avid yoga for maybe five or six years now, like two oh, three wow. times a week. Um, and just now, like at a space where I'm like, oh, now I get it. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so Steph Curry, Seth MacFarlane, and Norman Lear walk into a, a bar, um, and you're there, and then good times <laughs> becomes a thing. Uh, I don't yeah. know how much you can speak to it, but it is out in the world. Um, yeah. But I, it made me think about this idea of adaptation, even like, you know, adopting yoga mm -hmm. from in, through America, an American lens. Um, but like, there's a balance of preserving the essence of things in their, you know, original state, but also updating them, inserting your voice. You know, you've got these pretty powerful creative voices that are part of the experience. Yeah. Um, and it goes back to this idea of consensus. Like, how do you take something like that that's so precious to Americana, I'm, I'll say it that way, yeah. um, and turn it into, you know, hit, hit the refresh button on it. Well, I, I would never hit the refresh button unless I was, if I had a real pa a passion for a specific take on it, you know? Like, I don't believe in just doing it because it exists. You know, even if the studio's like, we own good times, we just need to do another good times. You know, and a lot of times that's, that is the approach. Like, we own it, why not keep doing it? Or Fast and the Furious 107 work, let's do <laughs> 20 more. But in this case, I actually, to be, to be honest, my first 
question was why. <laughs> I was like, because because they came to me and said, yeah, we're trying to do this. I was like, but why? I don't really understand. Like, good times exist, so why do another one? And and you know, so I but I I said, you know what? Let me wrap my head around it. I talked to Love about it, and we just started like you know throwing some ideas around. And basically, what, it, what where I found the inspiration because I'm always just looking for I got I, I just need something I can like hook into because right now I don't get it. But I just realized I'm like, well, there's some commentary that can be said about how much the black experience has not changed <laughs> from the '70s yeah. till today, right? And and showing the parallel struggles that still exist. And um, so I I said, well, how about we do an animated version of Good Times with a brand new Evans family set in modern day Chicago, but alongside of the problems that exist in black America, you also have all the problems that exist in the world now that are very, very, it's a very different America. Mm. Very, very different, I guess, geopolitical approach, right? Yeah. Like, cause you know, this is also like after Trump and you know what I'm saying? So there's a lot of things that, that I think that we, we, could, we could speak to. And because it's animated, right? We can even do some things that are really, really out there, you know, in terms of like satire and social commentary. So, you know, like I had this one, this one pitch where I wanted, I wanted there to be like, <laughs> kind of like this um, underground Wakanda beneath the projects, right? So it's like, where there's like, so like, so people see like, you know, a lot of stereotypical kind of struggle black, what we've seen before, like, you know, but then underneath it, there's a whole, civilization a whole kingdom <laughs> you know what i'm saying like like there's stuff like that that you can do in animation um that, that got me like excited because i'm like okay now there's something i can say and then i can also talk about how the projects are like an actual government project you know so whereas michael on good times was kind of like the you know like he was like the the more militant one right so we had a character like that but they were kind of woke in a different way so they were like you know like oh so the, the projects in Chicago are basically like test dummies for the rest of America. So they could be running experiments, you know what I'm saying, to see how the people and the projects do before they ex put this on the whole entire American right. population. So it's like stuff like that. Um, but I'm no longer involved with that shit. <laughs> okay. Um, well... And we oh is that is this the full circle for Brian? I, I can't is say is this the full circle? I can't say. Okay, all right, all right. <laughs> um, last but not least, because I love that story, and it leads to I have so much things, so many things I want to talk to you about. But um, is it more important for you to push cultural boundaries or creative boundaries? Mm. God. Well, I'll answer it this way: in, in order for you to really push cultural boundaries, you, you, you have to be extremely creative, you know, because, you know, I mean, look, there's already this, this thinking that, you know, our stories are not universal or global. And that's something that I, I still fight to this day. And, and, my, and my thing is, because, you know, it, this comes from a place of like, okay, if you have a, a, a person that's from a very unique set of circumstances, it has a very specific vernacular and 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 even their attitude comes from in context with where they you know depending on what kind of environment they grow up in if they grow up in the hood there's a certain kind of you know what i'm saying certain type of disposition and sometimes that could come off to studios or networks as some a character that's not you know unfavorable or not likable or or, or they can't or they think that it's not palpable for a global audience like 
But I, I, I think it's the opposite way. You know, I think it's the more specific, the more culturally specific the characters and the worlds are, I think the more it appeals to everyone because it's authentic, right? But that's not the way that they look at it, right. especially since streamers are so global now, they're trying to think of a way they could check off all these boxes and, ple and please everybody with one single thing. And so you have to be really creative <laughs> with how you translate the culture to the world, you know, and, and sometimes you gotta be a little bit of a politician because you have, to, you have to not only put it in the art, you have to also have a way of explaining it to the gatekeepers, you know? So there's, so there's you know, I, I give an example of hip hop all the time, you know, because hip hop was a very specific kind of art form that only spoke to maybe a couple of blocks. <laughs> or, right, you know, absolutely. And now it's, it's, you can go to Poland and they know the lyrics to Wu-Tang, you know, so, and Wu-Tang was damn near rapping in hieroglyphics, like who knew what they were talking about, <laughs> you know, so, but I think, but I, but I think if it's honest, you know, it'll translate, but you have to be really creative sometimes to get it out there, you know? Yeah. You know, it's 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 not an easy thing to do. I still struggle with it. Well, especially like in, in comedy, you know, and I think yeah. comedy pushes like presses up against a lot of lines of offense. And as we are a more hypersensitive culture, I revel in the people who find a lane to like still be um, racy or provocative or like, oh, I can't believe you said that. But yeah, it's like they found a way to be hands off of like, you know, with no one's hands around. A right. Throat. But you know what? But but I think the, I think the platforms are more hypersensitive than the audience because they're just afraid of because because a lot of times, I see a blog site and they'll say the internet reacts to such and such and such, and then I go read the comments and I'm like, wait, no one's, <laughs> no one's I saying that. that. It's like it, oh, a tweet that got like you know that person has ten thousand followers and they got three hundred you know reposts. It's like that's such a small percentage yeah. of the world and of the you know, of the country if you want to be U.S. centric, right? Or the one person that did react to whatever it was, you go to their page and they got twelve followers. It's like <laughs> this this guy represents all of Twitter. Like I don't understand, <laughs> you know. But the networks are hypersensitive because even if the narrative is out there at all, they're afraid that it may have some recourse. So I think they are over reacting more so than even the actual people mm. are being hypersensitive, you know. But I don't know, I think, I think we'll grow out of it. It's just gonna take some time. Yeah, depending on the most thing. Carl Jones, thank you for joining Masters of Craft. Oh, thank you for having me, man. This was fun. Yeah, all right. Awesome. Yay! <laughs> so. Oh, hello, everybody.